Well, good morning. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reform. It's good to be with you. Um, we are looking, working through a book of the Bible, James, a letter of James to the churches in dispersion, he said. Our, our children are being dismissed for Sunday school, if you're, or for a children's church. Um, if they haven't done that yet, now's a good time to go. They'll be wrestling with similar things and thinking about how they can re-enter the worship service to more fully participate with us. Well, we, uh, we are past the halfway point of the book of James. This will bring uh, chapter 4 to conclusion. There's only five chapters. Joseph's going to preach next week on the beginning of chapter 5. Um, but what uh, I'm arguing we're seeing here in the book is that James has moved to his big point. Uh, his central concern is that we would see God as a God of abundant grace. Grace poured out for the humble. And James has been concerned throughout the letter for a number of things. How we care for others in need. How we respond to worldly influences around us. And also how we, uh, how we speak. We see many of those concerns represented here. But I think what's happening is James is playing out this theme of humility, the theme he'd been developing through the letter, and showing us how that begins to change everything that we do. How does it change the way in which we talk? Or in particular here, James is concerned, how, do we, how does it change the way we talk about the future, the impact of humility on our regard for the future? I'll read this passage, we'll pick up just repeating this verse 10 that we've already looked at many times, as a, seen it as a central theme, and then we'll move through verses 13 and 17 as James talks about uh, our speech in regard to the future. James chapter 4, verses 10 and then 13 through 17, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, James has been concerned with how we speak, and in this particular passage, he talks about how we speak about the future. Uh, He introduces it by saying in verse 13, come now you who say, and then he goes on to say, to reference is something a person could very naturally say. They talk about their business plans for the next year. We're going to go here and do this and we'll, we'll trade and we'll engage in business and we'll make a profit. James considers that sort of speech to be boasting and even, he would say, an evil boasting. Then he goes on to correct the speech and say, and say that this is how you ought to say, verse 15, you ought to say this instead. This is the way you should speak about your future and your future plans. Now, one of the first questions that may arise as we look at it, as we might think, isn't James being a bit extreme? The sort of boasting he's talking about sounds fairly familiar to us. We make a business plan. Here's the business plan. You can, many of you might be in positions to do this. You set up a business plan or or a prospective 
plan for something you're going to do and your research and you present it to people and say, we're going to do these things and this is what's going to happen over the next year and it'll make a profit so you should invest in us. It sounds very normal and very familiar. Why is James so concerned about this type of speech? He calls it boasting and he even says it's evil. Why would James be uh, so concerned and how do we apply this into our lives in a way that makes a difference. So we'll do three things today. First of all, we'll try to get to the root of what James is concerned about. And then I want to spend a little bit of time thinking through why this really matters to us. Uh, Actually, I'll just say personally, the thing that James is talking about here has been really uh, personal for me and what God has been doing in my life. I'm still thinking about it and working it through, so when I try to share a little, it might not make a lot of sense. I'm still barely understanding it myself, but I also believe that what James is talking about actually strikes very close to home and things many of you are wrestling with as we think about the future. So first, what does it mean? Second, uh, what are a few ways we can connect this to our lives? And three, how do we cultivate a practice of living differently, speaking and thinking differently. Uh, those are the three things we're going to do today. So first of all, what, what is James talking about? And I, We want to start off by saying that it's really clear that James is not just concerned with how we speak. Uh, one of the, the really sort of surface ways you could apply this passage is that you could adopt the practice of always throwing in the phrase, if the Lord wills, into everything you ever say. And that would be one of the ways you could apply it. And so when someone's leaving, uh, you can say, hey, uh, we'll see you tomorrow. And you say, if the Lord wills. Now, it's not necessarily bad to do that. Some people will do it. Um, but you recognize it could go to an extreme, right? You, you, could, you, know, you could carry this through in everything you ever say with reference to the future. That would be a bit much. And what I'd like to argue today is that What James is talking about here when he talks about speech, and the reason he's so concerned about speech, is that speech gives us a window into our hearts. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what James is looking for here is not a formula that we add into everything we say, just to sort of throw in these words, but what he's more concerned about is the state of the heart from which we speak. In other words, what do you really believe about God, about yourself and the world? What do you treasure? What do you value? What's really of central importance for you? What James is getting at in this passage is a, is a position of, of arrogance even about the future that says we think we can control it, we think we know it, and we don't need God to do our plans. And if, you, if that is the state of your heart and mind, and it often can be, and all you do is simply start peppering all of your speech with, if the Lord wills, and you haven't addressed the underlying problem, you've missed the point entirely. So sometimes it could be helpful to begin to, to speak and add maybe some more contingencies about God into our everyday language, but merely changing the words, if it doesn't go after the deeper issue, is going to miss the concern that James has. So let's press in a little bit here. What is James talking about? There's a couple ways we could be wrong. One of them is just to sort of add the formula of words to everything we do. And the second is to misunderstand the concern that James has. Uh, James is not in this passage particularly concerned 
about a business that makes profit. He's not concerned about the money that they're making in the midst of their business. That's not the complaint that he brings. Now, next week, Joseph's going to preach on a passage in which James does raise concerns about wealth that's inappropriately or unethically gained. But that's not the complaint here. The complaint is rather, the concern James has is not about making money, but about the attitude you have as you consider future money-making activity. So look at what he says here. You notice all the references to time. Those of you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, he doesn't follow it up by saying, well, you know, that was a terrible way to make a profit. That's not what he's talking about. Instead, he's taking them to task for an attitude regarding the future in which we assume we know what's going to happen and we can control what's going to happen, the problem he has is the plans are made not in relationship to God. It's, it's coming, it's a planning that comes from a place where we assume we are the center of control. So what does James do? He, he, he points out that you actually don't know and you can't control what's going on. You are, he says, uh, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, verse 14. And secondly, uh, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. This is a common thread of biblical teaching. Last uh, Sunday in the Sunday evening service, uh, Dave Snow uh, addressed this topic from the book of Peter, also from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's everywhere in the Bible that humans are really at the end of the day not as strong as they think they are. That's the point that, that James is making here. He says your, your, your plans about the future reveal that you believe something different. You believe you're really, really in control. And then he goes on when he brings a correction in verse 15. He doesn't, he doesn't say stop going and doing business. And he doesn't even tell them to stop planning. It's really important to see that. He says, your plans must be contingent or dependent on God. What does, he, what does he tell them when he gives a correction? Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. So the, the, the premise here is they're still making a plan. They're probably still going forward in business. He's not correcting the business plan. But he's saying your business plan has to be grounded in your awareness that God is the king and you're not that you are dependent on him, that there's many things you can't control. Now, there's, again, a couple ways we can go wrong with this. One is we just start throwing in this phrase all the time and all the place, but we don't get at the matter of the heart, or or that we um, think that something's wrong with business. And it may be with this in mind, some of these extreme responses in mind, that James offers an additional correction in verse 16 Uh, He he talks about such boasting being evil. He's in very strong language. And then in verse 17, you know, he offers an additional correction. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, maybe at first the connection doesn't seem obvious, but it's probably something like this. James is a pastor and he knows his people well. He's really hitting them hard on the point that you are contingent on God. You can't control all of these things. And he knows there's a couple mistakes someone can make. 
Maybe there's someone who's so set on their plans that they fail to do the good things God's called them to do. They are just motoring ahead with everything they need to do, and they miss the stuff that God calls them to do. So he says, take seriously the stuff you're omitting. It's kind of the other side of the coin. Here they are going forward with everything they need to do without reference to God, and they're omitting the things he wants them to do. There's also another possibility, though, and it may be both of these things, is that sometimes we could grab James, the advice James gives us, and, and misapply it. We might say, well, listen, if, if I just, you know, if I'm going to depend on God, I'll just say, if the Lord wills, and I'll never make any plans, and I'll never really commit myself to doing anything. After all, I'm just a mist, and I don't know what will happen tomorrow. If God wants it to be done, he'll do it. That sounds a little bit pious, doesn't it? It sounds, wow, that's really a spiritual person. You're just letting go and letting God. But if the end result is that you fail to do the good you know you should do, James says that's just as big a problem. I believe what James wants us to see in this passage is not that we stop planning, not that we stop investing, not that we stop using our time and resources and energy for the good of others around us, but rather that we make all of our plans in an awareness of who God is, that we have a sense of our own humility, independence, dependence in the midst of our planning. Now, we'll move on to the second point here because I, I do think this is really, really relevant for our lives. At least it's relevant for my life, and if you're anything like me, then this, this has a lot to say. Let, let, me, let me just think through a couple of ways this could matter, and we'll start, start from this premise. James tells us that God is a God of abundant grace. You may remember, and in, in I think it was verse 6 or 8 or something in chapter 4, he said, God gives more grace. God is a God of abundant grace, but that grace is poured out for those who meet God in humility. Another way of thinking about it, I was reading through the book of John this past week, the Gospel of John. Like James, John had spent a lot of time around Jesus, and when he introduces us to Jesus in the very beginning of his book, he uses this extraordinary language. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, the abundant grace of God, the, the more grace that God gives is available for us. God has drawn near in Jesus. He has given us access through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus into the grace and the abundance of power that he has for us. This is just sort of standard biblical stuff, right? The extraordinary good news of Jesus given for us and the abundant grace that is given from God the Father to us. And the question we ask is, why does that not show up more in my life? Why isn't my life turned upside down by this abundant grace poured out in Jesus? That's the concern James has as a pastor. So he's, he's hammering on people this similar message again and again. God has grace for the humble. He pours out grace on the humble. 
But when we find our life characterized by the arrogance of believing we can control it and we can do it, we don't think we need God. The abundant grace of Jesus becomes something maybe we give a nod to. We think about a little bit in the back of our head, but then we go back to our plans acting as if we don't really need God. Our arrogance is a barrier to God. That's why James says, humble yourself before God and he'll exalt you. The particular aspect of that he's thinking of here is our regard for the future. If our regard for the future is one where we say, I really think I got this, we don't need God's grace. We're not positioned to receive it. We're not, we're not going to come before God with open and empty hands, humbly asking for his abundant mercy. Because we've kind of got it on our own. Let me play out a couple different scenarios as, as we think this through. I, again, I th- I'm convinced this is really practical. The, the way in which our own sense of control is a barrier. Many of you... Uh, are, are here in Oakland, not all of you, many of you are here in Oakland because you are pursuing some sort of career advancement. You are investing in a field of education or in a job or you're, you're, you're training, you're doing something here that is moving you forward. Oakland's a place people come to do that. That's just sort of what, what's going on. Now, not all of us, we're all, some of us are here for different reasons, But as we do these sorts of things, we are inundated with the statements that tell us we can succeed when we really try. Now, there's some good reasons why I would be told that. If you don't believe that your efforts and investments will bring success, then you're not going to make an effort and an investment. If you don't believe studying leads to good grades, which can bring a good job, then you're not going to study. If you don't believe that saving money can later help you buy something that you really want, you won't save money. And and some of us, though, come from backgrounds that didn't believe those things at all. And we have to learn them. We have to learn the good practice of saving, investing, working, training, and moving somewhere. However, this belief in advancement, achievement, and success, when it becomes independent of God, can be what the Bible calls idolatrous. It begins to take the place of God. And so we can begin to say about our own life and our own career and our own path and our own plans, the very same thing that James takes these people to task for saying. Come now, you who say, I think I'll move to Oakland for four years and study at this academy, and graduate this place in my class, and field job offers from these different companies. Come now, you who say, let me go to Oakland, and I'll take this first job that's going to prepare me for the the place that God is calling. You can put that God language in there. The place that I need to go and want to go in my life. Now, again, I think we paint the picture fairly. There's nothing wrong with making an investment in your future or training. That's part of wise stewardship of your gifts. The question James is asking is, are you doing it in dependence on God, or is it really your own plans, your own purpose, your own strength, and your own power? Many of you here today have wrestled hard with that because your plans didn't go the way you imagined 
Sometimes one of the most devastating points in our life is when we have been chasing something for so long, believing that it's going to bring everything we were striving after, and God interrupts those plans. Maybe you're angry at God because your plans didn't come true the way you had hoped. Maybe you've even grown up with people telling you, make your plans and do your thing, and if you come and serve God, he'll give you the blessing you want. James is looking for something much deeper. Who are you to say what you're going to do next year? James wants to remind us that there is one God in heaven and that is not us. That we are people who are contingent, dependent, not in control. So yes, we plan, but we plan in faith. Trusting the one who knows these types of things. Second sort of picture we can have here is one that applies to me a little more personally. It's similar, but it's a little different. Life is full of planning and investing. You know that, right? You, you, you might, uh, if you buy a house, you start to pay a mortgage. Or if you, you, know, think, if you have children, you start thinking about their future and college and all that they're going to do. And so we begin to plan for the future. A church plans for the future. As our church has grown, we make more plans. We hire more people. We make bigger investments. The trap that I fall into is I can accurately see all the ways that planning works over time. And that sometimes faithful ministry done for a period of time actually bears fruit far beyond what we can imagine. There's a value and stability in building and planning. And it's so... So easy to begin to think we can control it. My my struggle is not that I want to necessarily advance and make new changes and things. I just want everything to stay still. You can come up with a very good plan that says, if you know, if we just uh, we got a fifteen year mortgage on a building the church owns now, all we need to do is spend fifteen years doing pretty much the same thing, and we'll pay it off. Just. Don't move anything. I can begin to plan not to make some new advancement, but in my heart I long for stability and control because I fear what the future will bring. In some ways, the more we've seen fruitfulness in planning and ministry, the more I start to tighten my hand and pretend I control what's going on. Who are you? James says to me, who are you to make these plans about what you're going to do as if God's not present and in control far beyond what you can imagine? Who are you to come up with five-year plans for stability as if you can predict what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone over five years? Whether it's your desire to achieve or your need to keep things similar and in their place, James challenges us to think of the future with reference to God. Let me try one more run at this just to think of how it can be personal. Years ago, I worked at a, uh, a home for court-placed kids. Many of you might have heard me tell this story before. I was introduced to the kids as ones who were at high risk for bad things happening. They were a high-risk population. Some had already been in trouble. Many had been removed from their homes by the court because of bad behavior. 
And they were doing things that from our perspective were pretty risky, and destructive, and harmful. What I didn't understand when I went into it and later came to find out is that just because they were high risk doesn't mean they wanted to take risks in their life from their perspective. One of the things we did while I was there is I developed a program, an outdoor adventure, and we took kids to do things outdoors, climb things, cave and go underground or, or you know, go on hikes or do stuff that I, was kind of risk-taking. I thought high-risk kids want to do risky things. This will be great. It's not the truth. They didn't like risky things. They didn't like new things. And what I learned in that experience is just because I saw their behavior as being quote-unquote risky didn't mean that they saw it that way. What they were doing in their life was exactly what the, in many cases, what the people around them had been doing. They were doing exactly what their older brother had done or what their friends and neighbors had done. The high, quote-unquote high-risk behavior didn't seem risky to them. It seemed perfectly predictable and normal even if the consequences were bad. From their perspective, the most risky thing they would do is to do something different. The, the least controllable outcome was the outcome that meant going to school and trying to learn something. Because there was a risk there that they could fail. When I understood that reality, I understood how it applies so broadly to our own lives. We all have places where we struggle to do things, doing things that are harmful to us. Perhaps it rises to the level of addiction, dependence on a substance, a chemi chemical, or a pleasurable experience, a dependence to receive some controlling response to an uncertain and uncontrollable world. An outsider looks in at our lives and they say, That's, you're, you're killing yourself, it's risky. It doesn't feel that way to us. It feels like the one thing we can control. I know how to feel good. I know how to take control of my life. I know how to find escape and pleasure. It might kill me in the long term, but it, it's my access to control in the moment. James challenges us, who are you to say that you control your life? Often the secret of finding freedom from addictive patterns of behavior and controlling means of self-destruction is simply that we understand there is a God and we're not Him. The first step for Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous has always been admit you don't have control really the heart of these issues here you don't have control do you feel your skin crawl when I say that and if it really grasp what I'm saying don't you feel some sort of adverse reaction but that's frightening how do we live differently that's what James wants us to do there's several clues in the passage how do we cultivate a different response we're not grabbing hold of our circumstances with an iron grip or we're not throwing ourselves into addictive patterns of behavior that kill us. Well, James outlines here in this passage a response of humility, a response where we find freedom and grace from God. 
what are the things that we learn? I'll just mention three of them quickly. First of all, James urges us to contemplate, to reflect on, to be intentional in recognizing how little we know about the future. We can make some predictions. We can follow trends. We can anticipate certain stuff. But the truth is, none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone after the service today. Not fully. We love control so much, we can delude ourselves into thinking we know. We, we pay big money to try and hear the predictions of the experts. Again, sometimes they know wise predictions and wise trends. But on the whole, we don't know. One of the things I sometimes hear on the radio are these advertisements for people that help gamblers figure out who's going to win the football game. And do you know they're right about 50% of the time? <laughs> maybe, maybe 51. But any given week, if you want to know how unpredictable things are, you just you know, try to predict what's going to happen in a sporting event. No one knows. How about your life? September 10th, 2001, everyone in America had plans for what their future was going to hold the next few days, the next few weeks, the next few years, and nearly everyone was wrong. The world changed, changed rapidly in ways that are beyond our prediction. James says, grab hold of that. Recognize that reality, how little you know because it's there that you find true wisdom. We may not know, but the Bible presents us to God who knows. The God of all grace, abundant grace, knows tomorrow. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, the prophet speaking for God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that have not yet done saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Instead of trying to predict the future, James directs us to trust the God who knows the future. Yes, we plan. Yes, we invest. Yes, we make wise uh, use of our resources. But we do it in a spirit of faith that God knows and we don't. Secondly, James invites us to be uh, very aware of our own limited ability. You're a mist, he says. That's a, that's a very countercultural sort of philosophy to thinking about your business plan, isn't it? You're a mist. So not, number one, not only do you not know, number two, you can't control. Right? Of all the environmental phenomena, the mist is the least threatening. Flood moves stuff, a hurricane blows stuff over. But, you know, if you walk out in the morning and a heavy mist is set in, no one says, whoa, you know, this is going to... This is going to ruin everything. It's, it's vapor. It's, it's, a, it's something that fades when the sun shines on it. But again, that theme is found throughout the Bible. In fact, Psalm 90 says, Consider the number of your days, and you will gain a heart of wisdom. From a biblical perspective, true wisdom, a posture of humility where we receive the grace and mercy of God comes when we are really in touch with our own lack of ability. So when we rehearse, again, we, 
keep the balance here. You are made with gifts, abilities, and you, can, you are responsible for using them. But there is a wisdom in knowing that we're finite and not infinite. We rehearsed this in our call to worship, picking up halfway through. We read back and forth to one another. All flesh is grass, all its beauties like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The Christian alternative to believing we control everything is faith in God who does control. Again, it's not that we don't plan, but we plan with an open hand. We plan in reference to God, in dependence on God. And so we say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. Yes, we will plan, but we will know that we don't determine and control all the outcomes. Third and finally, we follow a similar trend as Jesus taught this moving through the Sermon on the Mount. I think there's a very practical wisdom he applies here and we'll simply title it this way. We meditate on the grace that is present now. One of the reasons why future planning can be so problematic is that we can often project some things a little bit into the future, but we can't project God's grace into the future. We don't see it yet. The Bible tells us God will be present tomorrow with daily bread for the day, with grace for your needs, with all that you need tomorrow, but we don't see it yet. And so future planning can lead us to times of great anxiety. We see perhaps accurately the whole realm of challenges and possibilities that lay ahead. And if we're honest, we know we don't have enough to face them. But God does. He has grace ready for us tomorrow. Daily bread already stored up for our need. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus urges his listeners not to be anxious Listen, he says, God knows the flowers and the birds, and he cares for them. How much more does God care for you? Jesus urges the people to think first of the kingdom of God, to be concerned with God's righteousness, and all things will be added. He closes with this line in the, in the section in your bulletin. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Friends, healthy Christian spirituality recognizes the need to plan, to invest, to know the future will come, but it always pulls us back to the present, to the moment we're in, the moment in which God's grace is available for us. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We have very little control over the outcome. But God is here with us now. His grace is available for all who would call out for it and receive it. Friends, if there's even a small sense in which you've grasped your lack of knowledge and about the future and your inability to control it, then you are ready to be humbled and ready to receive God's grace. It's that's the posture. If you feel some of that rising up in your heart, some of the fear and the concern for the stuff that you can't control, you're actually beginning to see a little more clearly and you are ready to receive what God has for you. Would you receive the abundant grace of God? 
Would you look to the mercy that is found in the Lord Jesus, to the care of a heavenly Father who cares for you more than he cares for the flowers and the birds, who knows you as intimately, more intimately than you know yourself. And would you, with empty and open hands, depend and receive and rest in the grace of God for you? Let's pray.